It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down. Hi, I'm Tilly. And I'm Ben. And this is Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, a podcast about Moby Dick. Uh,. Today, we are talking about chapters uh, 13 through 16, um, which are, uh, like, it's about um, three shortish chapters and then a pretty long one, uh, all kind of uh, in the lead-up to Ishmael actually getting on the ship, on the Pequod. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... To start with, chapter 13 is called Wheelbarrow. Um, and uh, this this chapter begins with um, Ishmael uh, settling his account at the inn that he's been staying at with Queequeg's money. Um, and the two of them set out to catch a schooner to Nantucket, uh, which is where they're going to go sign on to a whaling ship, um, carrying all their things in a rented wheelbarrow, hence the title of the chapter. Um, as they're walking down the street together, they're getting stared at, uh, which Ishmael claims is more because people are surprised to see the two of them together than actually because Queequeg is particularly out of the usual for New Bedford. Um, uh, so there's, there's kind of this theme of, of like, uh, people being prejudiced about, uh, Ishmael and Queequeg's relationship, um, that shows it starts here. Um. And Ishmael asks Queequeg why he's carrying around a harpoon, since uh, he would have assumed that the whaling ship would supply them. Um, but Queequeg explains that he prefers to use his own weapon, which has, you know, been through uh, so many journeys with him, and he knows it's uh, really good and solid. Um, uh, he also, if I, if I could interject, he sp- uh, Ishmael's way of describing it is... Very much, I'm certain not what Queequeg would specifically have said, because a lot of this is in Ishmael's paraphrase, and yeah. it's got the truly wonderful phrase, um, he had a particular affection for his own harpoon, because it was of assured stuff, well tried in many a mortal combat, and deeply intimate with the hearts of whales. Yes. And it's just, like, oddly romantic, even deeply intimate with the hearts of whales like, sounds much like something that seduces whales rather than impaling them. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, um, and it's also definitely romantic in the more general sense of, like, uh, this is an extremely, you know, romantic picture of Queequeg as, as this, like, hunter of whales. Oh, absolutely. And also, I, I really like how that sec- paragraph ends with... Um, you know, talking about how many many people prefer their tool, even if it would be provided. You know, it's just part of being a craftsman. Even so, Queequeg, for his own private reasons, preferred his own harpoon. Which, given that Ishmael's just given a list of reasons, implies that Queequeg basically just said, I like mine, and Ishmael just sort of embellished on that. Yeah, he, he, he generated uh, most of his half of the conversation, perhaps. 
Um, oh, oh, that's not fair. It makes it sound like I'm saying Queequeg isn't talkative. He is. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of Ishmael's interpretation here. Yeah. I I just really like that he, he gives, like, this list of reasons and then later says, for his own private reasons, as though we're not privy to them, which lets us sort of realize, oh, 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 this is what's going on. Yeah. Of course, you could also read it as him saying, like, well, these reasons I already gave you are the private reasons because I'm, like, I know all of his confidences, you know? Mm. Yeah, I I just think that in that case, he probably would have said something that sounded more like a thing Queequeg would say. Yeah, that also makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they, they keep talking, and um, Queequeg tells Ishmael uh, a couple of stories in turn. The first story is about the first time Queequeg ever saw a wheelbarrow, um, when he had been... Um, I'm not totally sure if this is supposed to be, like, the first time he ever came to, like you know, the North American Atlantic coast, um, or if this is just on a return from some voyage or other. Uh, but he was, somebody lent him a wheelbarrow to carry his chest back into town. Uh, in Sag he, Harbor, wherever Sag that Harbor, is. Sag Harbor, yes. Um, well, I think it's a harbor in Massachusetts. I, I, yeah, that, that would make sense. I, I feel, so I, uh, I grew up in the Boston area, and I, I think I've heard the name Sag Harbor before. Like outside of this book, um, cool. But I, I I couldn't say with certainty. I, I couldn't tell you whether it's north or south of Boston. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's still better than me. <laughs> anyway, I only uh, have Bostonian relatives. So um, so apparently, uh, Queequeg with this wheelbarrow, uh, he didn't know how to use it, so he puts his big chest on it. Um, ties the chest to it, and then picks up the entire wheelbarrow on his back and walks down the street carrying it. Um, which Ishmael thinks is pretty funny. Uh, and so Queequeg tells him another story. Um, this one is set back on his home island. Um, which, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, let me just check something real quick. What is his home island called? Cocovoco? Right, so I think I remember seeing it called something else in this chapter. Um, I think there might be inconsistency on what the island is called, either between chapters or between editions that I read. In my um, in my copy here of Chapter 13, Wheelbarrow, it's definitely Cocovoco, K-O-K-O-V-O-K-O in, in every instance, but I don't remember if it was something else in an earlier chapter. I can flip through that while we continue the summary. I would appreciate it. Your your yep, your yep. copy is definitely more likely to be free of spelling errors than mine, um, <laughs> because I'm I'm just looking at a uh, free website, uh, powermobydick.com. Oh um, well, I was assuming you were doing the the Gutenberg edition. I was about to be like, you know, Gutenberg editions are often you. Know, they have some very traditional, well worn typos because they're using historical copies, and 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 then no, it's it's. So is that power.mobydick.com? No, it's all one word. Powermobydick.com. I okay, to be clear, it's a whole website whose entire purpose is just to host the text of Moby Dick. No, I, that, I think it's a perfectly respectable attempt. That's very reasonable. I just find that URL very funny. Yeah, I I do not know why it's called that. Um uh, I think it was like maybe one of the top results when I Googled annotated Moby Dick. Um mm -hmm. anyway. Right, so so uh, so back on, uh, Cocovoco, um, it's a tradition, uh, to fill a punch bowl with coconut water and pass it around at wedding feasts. And, uh, 
at at Queequeg's sister's wedding, um, there was a captain of a visiting merchant ship there, um, and he was seated in a place of honor between Queequeg's father, the king, and the high priest. Uh, and at the beginning of this uh, of the party, the priest dips his fingers ritually in the coconut water to like bless it. Uh, but the captain, apparently watching this, decided that oh, it, it must be like a big finger bowl and. Uh, followed that up by washing his own hands in it. Um, which Queequeg uh, points out, that, like, basically that's just as ridiculous to us as anything I might have done with a wheelbarrow. Um, he doesn't point that out explicitly, but he uses the exact same phrasing that um, Ishmael did. Uh, like, Ishmael's, Ish, Ishmael after the wheelbarrow, stor- wheelbarrow story says something like, oh, didn't people laugh? Um, well, specifically he says, didn't the people laugh? And... Uh... In Queequeg's version, sorry. Please yeah, and then Queequeg, when he's told his own story, he's like, oh, didn't our people laugh? Uh, which is, I mean, yeah, fair enough. Yep. <laughs> also, that must have been really sticky. Like, I realize this is aside, besides the point of the anecdote, but just imagining washing one's hands in coconut water, just... Uh... I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it probably would be fairly sticky. Um... <laughs> mm. Also, uh, in my copy, um, Kokovoko is spelled consistently that way. Uh, also, something I realized looking at in the biographical um, chapter, the chapter called Biographical about Queequeg's childhood, um, a Sag Harbor ship visited his father's bay oh. when he uh, ran off. So this would have been his first time on North American shores, I assume. All right, then. There we go. Uh, thank you for clearing that up. Uh, so... After, uh, they, they seem to have, uh, passed their entire walk with this discussion of, uh, differing cultural norms. Um, and they arrive at the wharf and board the ship that's going to take them to Nantucket. Uh, and it takes them down the river, which New Bedford is on, and they can see ships that are returning from whaling journeys that are surrounded by casks of whale oil and other ones that are setting up for new journeys that have, uh, like the sounds of carpentry emanating from them um and then they come out to the to the sea uh which ishmael takes great pleasure in um and queequeg is also seems to be enjoying the like you know the the sights and the sounds and the the smell of the ocean they're i I think they're both like standing next to each other at the rail um kind of leaning out into the air um Okay, it doesn't actually say anything about where they're standing, but I, I picture them standing at the rail of the ship, like, leaning out over it. Um, That's, I mean, yeah, they're about to take off on the moss, the little uh, schooner that takes them up to Nantucket, I believe. Um, they've also got, uh, something I just want to note is that there's a little bit of um, Ishmael's sort of uh, religious rhetoric enters into here as well, um, specifically about those ships at harbor and how the... Um, the ones that have returned are surrounded by casks of whale oil, and the ones that are about to go out, which are the same ones in just a little a little time, are, you know, being worked on by carpenters. There's the phrase, the bl- with blended noises of fires and forges to melt the pitch, all betokening that new cruises were on the start. Um, and Ishmael sort of briefly talks about how, you know, the fact that a ship comes in, disgorges all its cargo immediately, is fixed up and sent out again. Um, he sees this as a metaphor for all earthly effort, effort that uh, 
a, you know, one most perilous and long voyage ended only begins a second, and a second ended only begins a third, and so on, forever and for aye. Uh, such is the endlessness, ye, the intolerableness of all earthly effort. I just find it, especially given the sermon just a little while ago, it's clear that Ishmael's sort of uh, gotten into that habit. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's also kind of funny that, like, he sees whaling voyages as, I guess, essentially, like, trials in this or, like, burdens, when, you know, it's something he's about to undertake voluntarily, and which, you know, the people who... Not to say... I think, generally speaking, you know, whalers anticipate returning to shore with, with great excitement, but uh, it, it's not as though... Like... Like, it, it it's as though he views um, whaling as almost like a um, something that's, like, forced on people... Uh. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way I'm seeing is that he just, um, he's got a really contradictory, uh, I mean, this is, this is part of the general tension Ishmael's doing, but he's got a really contradictory take on, like, on trials and tribulations in life, because sometimes he's like, ah, oh, yes, experience and the world and all these wonderful things, and sometimes he's like, and they're all here to make me suffer, to remind me that someday I'm going to die. Yay. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, so the two of them are, are, uh, you know, sniffing the sea air, uh, but while they're doing this, um, some of the other passengers are, are staring at them, um, for, uh, Ishmael thinks basically the same reason as the people on shore were staring, because I think Ishmael and Queequeg is, uh, are, are, a, like, an odd pair, or maybe even, there's a bit of an implication in this scene that people are actually kind of mad about it, um, or... Like, not just that they think it's weird, but that they think it's bad. Um. Yeah, I I have to say, I think that Ishmael's maybe reading a little bit more into this, not in the sense that people are being, you know, racist, but specifically he's, um, you know, frames this that, uh, oh no, this isn't because people are just sort of straightforwardly xenophobic, it's that they, they find us an odd couple. But at the same time, he himself does not receive any sort of harassing or, um, like, even comment in this chapter, whereas Queequeg yes, gets quite um, a in bit. in fact, uh, the next thing that happens is that one of these people starts imitating Queequeg, uh, like, making fun of him, uh, and this infuriates Queequeg so much that he throws the offender into the air and knocks the air out of his lungs. Uh, so it's not just that Queequeg, like, tosses him in the air and he lands and he, he loses breath. The, the actual description is that he's thrown up into the air, uh, then... Uh, hit in mid-air such that he lands on his feet, but um, completely, like, breathless. Like, he's had the, the wind knocked out of him mid-air. And, and all I can say to that, it, that is, by God, that's Queequeg's music! <laughs> yeah, he is absolutely doing fucking moves in this scene. Uh, yeah. <laughs> also, he, not just that, he does, like, an anime turn away because he throws him into the air, uh, Taps his taps his stern in mid somerset, so whacks him in like the in the in the stomach or something in midair, and then uh, while he lands, Queequeg turns his back and lights his uh, pipe. Yes, absolutely. Okay. It's, it's too just, fucking cool. It's so much. <laughs> uh, so of course, oh. of course, uh, the you know uh, racist immediately runs to the captain to tell on Queequeg. Um, and Queequeg is clearly in trouble. Um, 
admittedly, understandably so, he did just, like, commit an act of violence. Uh, I believe you mean he committed an extremely cool act of violence. First of all, yes, an ex- it's an extremely cool act of violence. Second of all, like, a pr- pretty justified one? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and, if, like... If I were in public and somebody just started, like, imitating my mannerisms... I mean, first of all, like, it wouldn't be racist if that happened to me because I'm white. But even then, I'd be incredibly offended. Um, and, like, it's it's obviously, uh, you know, obviously it's it's a, a xenophobic thing in Queequeg's case. So, like, yeah, I really can't say that he uh, makes the wrong call here, you know? Also, also, just, like, given the milieu of this book... While it's really spectacular violence, it's approximately the equivalent of just, like, shoving the guy or maybe, you know, uh, punching him. But, you know, because it's so spectacular, the guy's like, oh, he could have killed me. And the captain's like, oh, you could have killed him. And Queequeg's like, no, I kill larger fish. Yes, that's that's a... It's unfortunate that that line is in the, like, eye dialect that Queequeg yeah. gets. Because yeah. it's a it's a great line where he's just like, oh, I'm I'm too cool to even murder this man. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, paraphrasing, it's uh, he's small. He's a small fish, and I don't kill small fish. I kill large fish. Yes. <laughs> um. So uh, it it looks like maybe like uh, this has not been resolved. Queequeg has just been um, dismissing all of it coolly. Uh, but uh, just at the right moment, uh, the weather sheet breaks and the boom starts swinging back and forth. Um, in case anybody doesn't know, that's the horizontal piece of wood that the sail is on. So an enormous heavy piece of wood swinging across the entire ship. Uh, mild disaster. Also, I'm checking this because I feel this is very important and no one will agree, but it's a schooner, which means it's using, it has triangular sails rather than the square rig of um, a lot of ships of the era. So it has a classic boom or, you know, a modern, the boom we think of in a modern sense, which can swing the entire size of the deck and can swing really violently, whereas various other kinds of square rigs don't really have a boom in the same sense, or if they're lit. Various other kinds of rigs won't be as dangerous, but I'm pretty certain that this is the kind of boom that just murders people. Yeah, so uh, so in this desperate situation, um, uh, there's no time for anyone to give Queequeg a hard time. Uh, everyone on board is, like, losing their minds, uh, except Queequeg, who just calmly throws a rope around the boom and brings it under control. Uh, and then, once the ship is secure, he dives into the water and swims around for several minutes... Um, apparently looking for someone, although Ishmael looking over the side can't see who, uh, Queequeg might be trying to rescue, uh, until he, uh, Queequeg finds the person and brings them up out of the water, and it's the guy who Queequeg was just fighting. Um, and Queequeg saves that man from drowning. Uh, so after that, everyone agrees Queequeg is a stand-up guy, uh, and... I, I believe what you mean is, uh, and then everyone on the bus clapped. I mean, okay, he just saved someone's life. Like, yes, I, fair enough. Everyone in the lecture room stood up and clapped after uh, the bad professor was proven. I'm just saying this is very... Um, it's very it's, convenient that exactly yes. the person who <laughs> was just being an asshole to Queequeg was then put in mortal danger for Queequeg to save him from. Yes. Yes. 
And, like, it's in a way that's really, um, what's, like, ah, shoot, what's the term for, like, uh, um, oh, shoot, I'm sorry to forget the word right in the middle of saying something, but it's, um, like, uh, teaching, tutelary, um, starts with a D. Didactic. It's very didactic, yes. And I'd be more annoyed at it and find it less charming if it weren't for the case that none of these characters will ever matter again except for Queequeg and Ishmael. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very much like a, you know, a sort of morally illustrative moment in, like, the, the like, life story of a hero, you know? Um, yes. It, it's very, like, it's like George Washington and the Cherry Tree or some shit like that. Like, one of those stories Yeah, it's exactly that, like that. Um, complete, and, uh, with, complete with uh, Queequeg not really understanding that he's done anything particularly impressive uh, and, like, just not, not like, taking any accolades, just going over and smoking and, like, drying himself off. Yes. It's, it's, it's very George Washington, which is a comparison that was made earlier by Ishmael, so. Yes, that's true. Uh, yeah, that, that's obviously why that particular, you know shit that didn't happen dot text stories <laughs> in my head um and uh uh there's uh the, the last ishmael's sort of like imagination of what queequeg is thinking at this time is the i think it's the last line of the chapter and it's very good uh he says it's a mutual joint stock world in all meridians we cannibals must help these christians which is such a great i mean it's obviously a reversal of a like stock phrase right um that would be probably used to like encourage people to donate to missionary work or something like that um except characteristically uh it's Queequeg who has the sort of paternalistic attitude toward the Christians around him <sighs> so yeah uh that's that incident a little uh just a little sort of uh capsule chapter about like about Queequeg's character and his his cultural alienation. And how he's extremely cool. Yeah, there's definitely also, like, an element here of just, like, wow, seeing Queequeg accomplish athletic feats is great. Like, whether he's kicking someone ass, someone's ass or saving their life, he's doing it with, like, rippling biceps. Are, are you saying that uh, he attack and he protect? <laughs> oh my god, yes. Exactly that. Uh, yeah, no, it's... I really like Queequeg as a character and the way he's presented, just because it's... Especially almost because we're at, at such a sufficient remove that maybe the, like, um... The part of the didacticism is much less necessary for us, and part of the, the context in which this exists is sort of... I mean, basically, we don't really believe in cannibals as, like, a, a, a collective that encompasses some chunk of humanity in the way we think about the world, the way that Ishmael does, and the way that the society he exists in is supposed to in this book. And I don't know if that would have been an anachronism. No, I think based on the way people talked about Melville and his own voyages, that wasn't an anachronism. That's not him intentionally sort of poking fun or using a previous way of talking as a reference, because this is, you know, set a while earlier than his own voyages, or around the time of his own voyages. So no, it's just something that we don't have. 
as as readers. It's not part of our context. And frankly, I think it makes a lot of this better that we can just appreciate Queequeg for the, you know, uh, badass, um, you know, hero he is without feeling like this is, you know, supposed to be commenting on our current worldview, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little disingenuous to say that uh, the kind of, um, like, the understanding of the world is, like, divided mm. into, like... You that's, know, pagans and Christendom that that has not gone away, right? Like that, there are that's lots very of people true. that that per, that perspective on culture is still dominant in the world we live in. Um, that's it's just, true. Like it, it's different, it, and people wouldn't use the actual word cannibal or like savage. Yes, as much. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. No, I I mostly mean that it, it's that it's the fact that these same kinds of xenophobia and sort of cultural myopia that it's taking aim at are, have been framed in very different terms means that these much older and sort of more blunt terms yeah. uh, stand out and are just, it's it's very transparent what it's commenting on in a way that I just find very, um, it's easy reading, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I can see that. Like, it's it's clear which side this is on, even if it's, you know, very old, and it's it's very clear what it wants us to take away in these. The, the didacticism is relaxing. Yes, yes. Um, like, it, if the worst, if, I mean, this is not actually the case, but if the worst criticism one could make of a historical white author is that they're trying too hard to tell you that non-white people are human, um, then, you know, that's that's pretty decent. Uh, I don't think that's the worst criticism you can make of Melville on racial grounds, but... Certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, anyways, uh, let's get to just um, talking about how how it's impossible to live on Nantucket. Yes. Uh, so chapter 14 is called Nantucket. Uh, and they, they, they arrive at Nantucket, um, which, in case anyone doesn't know, is an island off the coast of Massachusetts. Um, one of a, a handful of... Uh, islands that are basically small towns um and uh ishmael takes the opportunity to just sort of expound upon the subject of nantucket um he talks about how lonely and barren it is uh including he, he kind of describes this list of jokes that people make about nantucket about how nothing grows on it and it's like totally surrounded by the sea um but but he makes it clear he thinks most of this stuff is is sort of exaggerated um that you know, it's it's not. Uh, I didn't write any 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 down for myself, but uh, maybe I should give an example of some of this hyperbole that he quotes. I mean, I've I've got it right here. Sure. Uh, if you want one, um, uh, that um, they have to plant weeds there; they don't grow naturally. Yes. That they import Canada thistles. That they have to send beyond seas for a spile, which I think is a little piece of wood, to stop a leak in an oil cask. And that pieces of wood in Nantucket are carried about like bits of the true cross in Rome. Yeah, so... And then it goes on, and on, and on. <laughs> yeah, there's there's like quite a few uh, more of these, but but yep. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that people apparently say about Nantucket. Um, which Ishmael, you know, dismisses all that stuff, but points out that... Uh, but, but he, you know, bothers to recount it. Um, mm -hmm. And then he tells a legend about how supposedly uh, Native people first came to live on this island. Um, which I have to assume... I mean, first of all, I assume the story is totally apocryphal. In that I don't actually think this is how people moved onto Nantucket in the first place. Um, and second of all, I assume it's, like, 
a, a story that um, white New Englanders tell each other, not necessarily actually like a, a native story. Um, but both of those admittedly are assumptions. So if anybody knows more about the history of Nantucket uh, than I do, uh, I would welcome comment. I know they're um, known for their nectars. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I couldn't resist. It it was the perfect opportunity. Um so the the story that Ishmael tells is that uh an eagle carried off an infant uh and the infant's parents rode out to follow um and ended up on this island uh but when they got there all they found was their child's skeleton. Um which as a as a just so story for how people came to live on Nantucket is I find it sort of unsatisfying. Like, why did yeah, they no, stay there? Yeah, it doesn't really end. It just sort of... And here's where I will say, if it is based on an actual story that was told by people there, like, if it's if it's not entirely a creation of Melville to give the right gothic atmosphere to Nantucket, I have to assume that there's some further explanation or development there, but he just ends on skeleton. Yeah, yeah. Like, it would just take one more sentence where it's like, you know, um, and, and they were, like, so distraught by grief that they stayed there for the rest of their lives or something like that. And, yeah. like, but, you know, he doesn't say anything like that. It's just sort of left to assume that, I, of course, they would stay where, they're, where they found their dead baby. Um, yep, yep. Uh, and then from that he goes back to the bit this is another example of ishmael being kind of a weird or bad storyteller in ways i find deeply charming he refers back past that as though it's a continuation of the thing about how little grows on nantucket by going immediately to uh what wonder then that these nantucketers born on a beach should take to the sea for a livelihood it's like wait 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 we were just just there's a skeleton Yeah, there was just death on the beach, like a baby skeleton on the beach. Now you're like, Nantuckers, board on the beach, live on the beach, food on the beach. Just, where is your head, Ishmael? Yeah, um, and, uh, uh moving on from there, he, he describes the, basically the various ways that they, uh, um, and, and he's now referring, to be clear, um, I think to, like, uh, European settlers, settlers yeah. yeah. Um, how they progressed from uh, catching shellfish to wading with nets to fishing from boats and finally to exploring the world uh, on whaling ships. Um, and he really uh, he he gets very into this particular section because uh, it's almost as though you know he hasn't had the chance to really wax poetic on whaling for a bit. Um, <laughs> so so now uh, the, there's the part. He, he, he just uh, describes a whale, for example, as uh, that Himalayan salt sea mastodon clothed with such portentousness of unconscious power that his very panics are more to be dreaded than his most fearless and malicious assaults. Uh. Yeah, he also, um, this, this section, uh, it gets really elaborate. Like, yes. he just keeps going. Yeah, like, it's sort of easy to summarize the, the like, technological advancement he's talking about. Um, but, uh, the, uh, the, the, the description is very vivid and, and very, yeah. like, extremely celebratory of the Nantucketer. Um, yes. And then whom... c- continuing on to, like, this, um, this imperialist ambition of Nantucket. 
Yeah, so as far as uh, as far as Ishmael is concerned, Nantucketers are the rulers of the entire ocean, uh, which is, you know, a greater empire than any on land because it's, you know, two-thirds of the world. Um, and Nantucketers uh, basically rule the ocean more so than any other people or any other sailors. Um, and his, his specific logic there is interesting because it's, it's very Ishmael and very much this, you know, this book. Um, because it's specifically that nobody else actually, like, extracts from the ocean. Nobody else, um, acquires their living directly from the ocean. They do trade across it. They do, um, they, uh, you know, might live in parts of it. They might even hunt each other on it. But only whalers actually, like, pull up wealth and riches from the ocean itself. Uh, so it's really more theirs than anybody else's. Yeah. Um, yeah. He also, I think, uh, looks at it as sort of a matter of, like, um, like where, where someone is sort of most comfortable. And he's claiming, at least, that Nantucketers are really at home when they're sailing. Um, uh, for uh, there's a. A very sort of enticingly science fictional metaphor. Um, he says, uh, For years he knows not the land, so that when he comes to it at last, it smells like another world, more strangely than the moon would to an earthsman. Um, which uh, I, I'm now going to request that everything update its terms from earthling to earthsman, please. I, I would like to suggest one better, and they should be called earth lovers. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's, that is Nantucket. This chapter, I think, is the shortest one of the ones we have this week. Yep, and it's Pretty just good. describing Nantucket. Yes. Mostly through jokes. Yes. Uh, the next chapter, uh, chapter 15, is titled Chowder. Um, that's not a Cartoon Network is... show. Sorry, really dumb joke. Please cut it. Okay. Uh, and, uh... So Queequeg and Ishmael uh, have arrived in Nantucket. It's late in the evening, so they immediately try to find an inn. Um, they've been recommended one by uh, Peter Coffin, the innkeeper back in New Bedford. Um, the place they're looking for is called the Tripots. Uh, it takes them a little while because Coffin's directions are confusing and the two of them remember them differently, uh, but eventually they find an inn that has two pots hanging outside. I'd like to interject that this is the uh, one of the most relatable moments in the book because, um, like I mentioned, I have Bostonian relatives, and um, all of my all of the relatives from New England, whenever they give directions for getting around town, especially in Boston, which is a maze um, of of more dimensions than it should have, uh, they will just say, "Oh yeah, no, no, turn right at at this particular landmark or street, and then you know go." Uh, this way for a while, you'll see this particular church with a steeple. It's like everything has a steeple. This is this is New England, and then past there, you know, turn right, turn left, and so on. I've I've gotten a map once drawn by my my lovely aunt who um, drew what was just sort of a squared off zigzag, and uh, only annotated one of the turns with a street name, and it was illegible. <laughs> 
So I'm really feeling uh, Ishmael and Queequeg's distress here as they attempt to follow a New Englander's directions through town. Uh, so when they get there, uh, Ishmael is, is sort of arrested, staring up at the, um, the, the mast, because um, the thing that the pots are hanging from is an old mast, um, which has, uh, they have like, um, okay, they're, they're called cross trees, uh, but basically what those are, are like little horizontal bits at the top of the mast, right? Um, and those are what the, um, those are what the pots are hanging from, but the cross trees have, half of them has been cut off so that instead of being like a T-shape, it's like a, an upside down L, um, or, uh, as Ishmael thinks, it's like a gallows, um, and he's sort of staring up at it and thinking about that, and, uh, he reflects like, oh, there's two of them, one for me and one for Queequeg, uh, and while he's being morbid like that, um, the innkeeper's wife, whose name is Mrs. Hussey, appears, um, uh, giving someone a scolding, uh, apparently, like, kicking them out. And Ishmael wakes up. And uh, Ishmael and Queequeg ask her for dinner and a place to stay, and she shows them in. Uh, and she very curtly asks if they want clam or cod for dinner. Well, um, no, she, what she asks is just, clam or cod? Yes. Uh, and, and Ishmael then... is, is confused by it, um, because he thinks she means they're just going to give the two of them a single cold clam. Um... Which, on the one hand, that would be pretty terrible, but on the other hand, I, it's a little ridiculous to me that he doesn't figure out what's actually going on I, until the food comes out. I think he mostly just wanted to make the, the various dumb puns that he makes about this being a cold and clammy reception. <laughs> yes, that's very possible. Because um, we have to remember that Ishmael is a school teacher by, by trade, or at least he has been in the past, which means his sense of humor is incredibly obnoxious and often relies on... Uh, on, like, pretending he's misheard or doesn't understand something so he can make more puns. As someone who also has this sense of humor, eh. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so while he's yammering on about uh, clamminess, um, uh, she ignores him and uh, gets a... Uh, orders them to, you know, get him a supper of clam, and when it comes out, it turns out it's clam chowder. Um, which... Basically, I, I just don't know why you would assume if someone says cod or clam that what they intend to do is give you not enough clams for two people. Um, like, I guess you could reasonably interpret that as meaning just clams, nothing else, not even a, a dish made of clams. Um, but I think Ishmael is, is, is expecting the worst of the tripods, and I'm, I'm like glad that they prove him wrong uh, because he uh, is absolutely delighted by this meal. Um, yeah, I mean, he also, um, he also earlier was making puns about, you know, he plainly hinted that we could not possibly do better than try pot luck at the tripods. So I, I just assume that Queequeg is being an irascible imp this entire sequence. <laughs> I wouldn't, irascible? Yeah, that like, means, he's, like, angry. Well, cantankerous when he's like, oh, you're just giving us a cold, a single cold clam? Oh, Queequeg, do you think we can all, we can survive on one clam? Yeah, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I will he's definitely agree that he is being impish. And he's absolutely being, like, cantankerous, would that be a better word? 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, you've convinced me. I, I'm, I'm okay with irascible or cantankerous. Um, uh, I, I think I just was, like, uh, wondering whether you meant, like... I had in my head that there was some word that sounded similar to irascible, but I have no idea what word it is, so let's move on. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, Ishmael... Uh, having enjoyed the clam chowder so much, he, he also experimentally calls out cod, and it turns out that gets him cod chowder, which is also delicious. Um, I've never had cod chowder, and I'll be honest, one thing that this chapter really made me, made happen is that I really want some clam chowder right now. I'd, I'd really like a chowder. Yeah, I find... Like, I've had and enjoyed clam chowder. I think it can be really delicious. Uh, conceptually, the thought of a dairy soup with fish in it is really gross. But Which it's I delicious! Know, right, like, I've eaten clam chowder, and I've eaten also, like, uh, like lobster bisque, uh, which is also very good, and, like, other... I'm sure I've had other things that could be described it, as a combination of dairy and fish, but, but even though I know it's good... Is this about the Hussie's cow? Well, is this about the Hussie's cow? Yes, okay, so let me get to that. Um, so uh, Ishmael uh, is kind of describing the tripods, and he calls it the fishiest of all fishy places. Um, the evidence being that they serve chowder for every meal, and, like, everything around the place is made out of fish products, like the, uh, the, pa- the, um, the walkway is paved with clamshells and... Uh, the account book is bound in shark leather and stuff like that. And yes, uh, apparently even the milk tastes fishy, which confuses him until he sees the cow, which is feeding on fish remnants. And that's just gross. Yes, Well, it also, is. but again, he's definitely making a pun here because he says, and marching along the sand with each foot in a cod's decapitated head, looking very slipshod, I assure ye. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, slipshod. Because uh-huh. it's it's like chum, slip. Anyways, w- what I'm saying is that I am almost certain Ishmael is making some of this up so he can make more bad fish puns. Yeah. He also does really love, like, just describing a, a place as being, like, physically made out of, like, fish stuff. Um, yeah, he's he's very strongly of the opinion that New England is built on fish and whales. And he wants that to be as physical as possible. And I can't tell if that's Melville in general or or Ishmael, and that's one of those places where it's very hard to disambiguate that. To be fair, I'm sure, like, it's accurate to some extent. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean... I can totally imagine, like, uh, um, a, I can fully believe that there are places where, like, you know, uh, people used shark leather. I mean, it's, it's like not that. just... it's. Not, I mean, there's... This is, uh, you know, the, um, that, the famous song... Uh, Cape Cod girls, they have no combs. They comb their hair with codfish bones. Like, that was a... That that has such a long cultural life that my own family has sung that song on long car rides. I do not know that one. Uh, but oh, really? Then, oh, well, I'm... I mean, your family likes to sing, like, sea shanties on car rides. Uh, so I don't yeah, know that this... you... You're, like, I don't think your family is a good example of people who are disconnected from, like, the lore of... Uh, okay, no, my, my family, again, my, my, the New England side of my family very, feels very New Englandy. but specifically I'm just saying that a traditional, or at least I think traditional song about, um, that you, you know, 
Cape Cod Girls, which has, you know, explicitly claims that they, you know, use codfish bones for, um, for combing, and uh, Cape Cod Kids use uh, codfish heads for sleds, and so on, and there's just all these examples of uh, fish byproducts. And so I think there is, at the very least, there's a cultural image in some of these New England areas of, like, yeah, we do everything with, with fish. Yeah. So maybe uh, it's just accurate. Yeah, hard to say. Um, so the the very last thing in this chapter is that uh, Mrs. Hussey insists on taking Queequeg's harpoon away before they go to bed uh, because of some past violent incident, which I couldn't quite understand what she was talking about. I think maybe she's referring to a suicide, uh, but some sort of incident of violence in the past at her inn with a whaleman and a harpoon. Yeah, um, I... I would be surprised if it was a suicide just because it was a harpoon stabbed into his side and that's very that seems like a very difficult way to do it yourself just angles wise yeah I mean the the reason that I think it might be suicide is because like you know she doesn't talk about like people having a fight mm. she, she what she says is is that this happened um <gasps> But oh, to someone you know, who was coming from a, an unfortunate voyage, uh, like, mm. it, so, okay, let me actually read what it says, although I'm not going to read, she also has some I dialect, uh, which I'm not going to yeah. read. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are not enough vowels to read that. <laughs> Ever since young Stiggs coming from that unfortunate voyage of his, when he was gone four years and a half with only three barrels of oil, was found dead in my first floor back with his harpoon in his side. Ever since then, I allow no boarders to take such dangerous weapons in their rooms at night. So, yeah, I... So, I think the implication is that someone who was, like, horribly unlucky uh, fell on his harpoon on purpose in her back room. That's entirely possible, yeah. I, I will also say that um, uh, Ishmael specifically says every true whaleman sleeps with his harpoon, um, which uh, I can also see this being... That like the implications, the guy rolled over onto a harpoon, literally in bed with him. But I think you're you're more likely to be correct. Yeah. Also, like hilarious that Ishmael, who you know, kind of just learned what whaling is two days ago, is like, oh, every true whaler sleeps with his harpoon. Well, look, it's it's a simple equation. Queequeg's a true whalesman. Every true whalesman is therefore, in many ways, similar to Queequeg. Queequeg sleeps with har- his harpoon. Therefore, true whalesmen sleep with their harpoon. This as long as you understand. This logic will not get you far as far as, you know, like, most whalers do not sell shrunken heads. Yeah, but Queequeg has clearly become the epitome of whalesmen, so they're just not true whalesmen. Listen, true whalesmen of names that start with Q (laughs) are from a Pacific Island nation and are royalty. Yes, absolutely. Uh, So that Uh. is, uh, I think that's all I have to say about chapter 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now we have chapter 16, the ship, which I think this chapter is as long as the previous three put together. Just um, about, but I do have one last thing for the chowder chapter, which oh, is, sure, okay, go ahead. if you had to choose clamor cod. I guess clam, just because I'm more used to clam chowder than I am to cod chowder. Yeah, that that's reasonable. But, but I, I would... you know, I, there's nothing... I've enjoyed both clams and cod in my life. They're both perfectly enjoyable fruits of the sea. Uh, 
And I guess I don't know any reason why cod chowder should be bad. I guess maybe so, I should maybe I should get that actually. It would be something I've never or, had. You know, we could get both. And uh, a couple of smoked herring by way of variety. That's also like a corny joke, isn't it? Like, oh, let's have some more fish by way yes, of variety. Yes, that is absolutely a cor- corny joke about, yes. Uh, yes, let's have both kinds of fish. And then mm, more fish. Fish, maybe? Fish. Fish. Yeah. Yep. Fish is, is it's, what for, it's what's for dinner. And lunch. And breakfast. Yes. So, uh, chapter 16 is called The Ship. Uh, and this chapter concerns basically how uh, Ishmael and Queequeg select the ship that they're going to sail out on. Um, and how they, like, get accepted to that ship. Um, so, they're in bed discussing their plans for the next day. And Queequeg explains to Ishmael that his god, whose name is Yojo... Uh, insists that Ishmael be the one to pick the ship. Um, which, Ishmael doesn't really like this idea very much, because he was hoping to rely on Queequeg's expertise. Um, but, uh, Yojo and Queequeg are totally obstinate on this matter, so Ishmael kind of just has to go along with it. Um, so the next morning, uh, Queequeg is, is busy with, uh, religious observances, um, uh, according to Ishmael, it's some kind of day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer for him. Uh, so Queequeg is up to that, and Ishmael goes out to pick the ship. Uh, he has three possible options, the Devil Dam, the Titbit, and the Pequod. Um, and he... <laughs> Sorry, I just, hearing that aloud, it's just like, oh, I wonder why he went with the Pequod. Hmm. It's like his, his first choice. Yeah, There's he... one called... Well, it's Sorry? funny. He, he he talks about the etymology of the names of the ships, uh, but he says, Devil Dam I do not know the origin of. Titbit is obvious. And then he explains that uh, Pequod was the name of a um, an extinct tribe of... Extinct. That's a weird way to say it. Genocided. Uh, tribe of Na- uh, Massachusetts native people. To be fair, um, he does say extinct as the ancient Medes who did also get... You know, we're also people, so... Yeah, no, he, yeah, when he says extinct, he, uh, it's weird for me to say extinct because modern people tend to use that mm-hmm. word about animals. Um, yeah. But it is actually, a- but I don't think on. it necessarily has that implication in this context. N- no, in fact, uh, scientific extinction is a relatively recent concept. Um, I, actually, I don't know if it's, if it is something he would have been very well aware of because the idea of extinct species really, uh, I want to say Cuvier was the one who really put it forward, and that was a uh, revolutionary-era French scientist. So by by Ishmael and Melville's time, I think probably extinction is understood, and I think he references like the extinction of animals a few times and when talking about things like mammoths and so on. But it's still a relatively recent move from extinction as a thing that happens to animals versus to nations or peoples. Yeah. Um... So, right, but the, the reason I brought up this little thing where he, he notes the, I guess, the etymologies of the names of these ships is that, uh, uh, to me, Devil Dam is obvious. It means, like, you know, like, Dam means mother, so this ship is called, like, the Devil's Mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know why he would say, I don't know what that means, or I don't know the origin of that. Like, it's pretty transparent. It's more transparent than Titbit to me. <laughs> 
Yes, I, as someone who has absolutely no idea what titpit means here. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I know what the word tidbit means. I, I guess yes. that's why he, what he means when he says it's obvious. But anyway, I think this I, might I, be slightly Ishmael pretending he's never heard of swears. <laughs> that That's entirely possible. Um, actually, while we're talking about this stuff, I do want to note that something I find really interesting about... Um, Queequeg's sort of oracular turn here, where he's, um, you know, relying on the, uh, on Yojo's advice. Specifically, um, uh, he, the, uh, Queequeg is described as cherishing Yojo with considerable esteem, as a rather good sort of god, who perhaps meant well enough upon the whole, but in all cases did not succeed in his benevolent designs. I, I think meaning he did not always succeed, rather than always failed, but I just think the... For a book that is going to be so concerned with divinity, uh, like, an all-powerful deity and sort of the, the morality or implications of that, and, uh, you know, the, the struggle of an, a certain individual against uh, the force of God or nature, the fact that we've got this introduction to Queequeg's mode of religion being, yep, there's, there's a god who is nice, but not necessarily always successful or always... Um, you know, always perfectly effectual. Uh, but he's trying interest- his best. Exactly, he's trying his best. He's, you know, he's present. He's he's looking out for Queequeg. And in this case, I think we can fairly say very mild spoilers that get spoiled in this same chapter, actually. This does not turn out well for Queequeg. This was a bad decision. I'll bet the titbit didn't chase the white whale. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. A... I- Kind of well-intentioned, but deeply insufficient god. Hmm, maybe a, a demiurge? Anyways, I, I, I just like that bit. I mean, I feel like uh, the way that uh, Ishmael looks at Yojo is, is less that he... Is more that he's kind of, like... Like a cute little god, you know? Yeah, no, that, that's what I mean, but like... But the demiurge is huge, Ben. The demiurge well, it is depends. like... It depends on your version of Nos... Anyways, but... My point is just that the idea of an insufficient divinity is an interesting one for a book that's so concerned with uh, giant and ter- like you say, huge demiurges. And here we have just a little demiurge that's trying its best. Yeah, it's definitely like let's not you know uh, totally beat around the bush here. This is definitely like kind of a contemptuous way to view someone else's religion. Um, yeah, no, that's def- I, that is definitely the case on Ishmael's side. I guess what I mean is. As part of the the ongoing way the book puts together different conceptions of religion, it's still very much the sort of abstractly pagan, almost certainly not an actual religious practice from the Pacific Islands, but like a pastiche of one, um, take on the world versus the various Christian and Christian heretical approaches that show up on the Pequod and, are, and in Ishmael's own thoughts. I, I just think it's worth pointing out that at least Melville is, you know, significantly less harsh about Queequeg's religion than um, than he is in the final accounting with any of the Christian religious stuff that happens on the Pequod. Yeah, that's very fair. I also think it, it's kind of an interesting question to ask, you know, um, was it, like, an auspicious thing for, uh, for Queequeg to let Ishmael pick the ship? Because, I mean, okay, you're definitely right, uh, that, like, going on board the Pequod is, like, a, 
uh, a turning point in fate. And, like, if, if they hadn't done that, none of the Let's- shit that happens in the rest of the book would happen. Let's not beat around the bush. It is a death sentence. Going on the Pequod is a death sentence. Yes. Um, but, like, it, uh, basically, we don't know what Yojo wants. Like, I guess probably good things for Queequeg. Um, but I, I guess, like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty certain, I'm not 100% positive, but I'm almost sure from, like, general cultural awareness and also from something that is said later in this chapter, uh, that Queequeg dies on, uh, the Pequod. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, like, there's also this thing where he sort of, like, wants to go home when, once he's, like, purified of, like, the Christian world, right? Um, and something mm-hmm. that always kind of bothered me about that idea was, like, how is that supposed to happen as long as he's, like, running around in Christian society? And I've... Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if there's, like, an implication here that, like, Yojo wanted to give him a heroic death. Yeah, or or I think another thing to be said for it is, um, it is certainly the case that uh, if Yojo is being clear in his, des- if the idea that is that, um, where's, it's, right, Yojo purposed befriending us. The, this, the, the claim is that Yojo wants them to be friends. And I think that there's a very real, like, you can definitely say that, you know, trusting uh, trusting Ishmael in this case, going on the Pequod together, they absolutely ended up, uh, you know, tight friends to the very end. Yeah. Um, you know, other things may not have worked out, but that specific detail, if that's what Yojo was aiming for, it worked out great. Yeah, that also makes sense. Yeah. So I think that, and I think also there's simply the, and I think it's interesting to bring up that idea that, like, being cleansed of... Christianity or, or sort of a certain kind of Christian, one might say hypocrisy or civilization um, in the way the book thinks about it, is what has to happen for um, for uh, Quiqueg to return home. In which case the Pequod might be the, might in fact be the right ship on that level, not even in terms of a heroic death, just in terms of all the weird, weird shit that goes down on the Pequod and its weird multivalent religious significances and like, in a lot of, like, this, this binary of, you know, pagan and Christian or cannibal and Christian is not going to stop getting articulated on the Pequod. In fact, it's going to explode. Uh, especially when we get to Ahab and everything about him and his sort and his crew, so you can definitely see it as if that's what you know, if that's what Queequeg needs to do, both narratively and like metaphysically in the way this book is framing it. Then yeah, aiming for the Pequod with all the certainty of fate is absolutely a way to get to the heart of that matter. But there will be no survivors. Yeah. Well, there will be almost no survivors. So. Back to the moment with Ishmael before he knows anything about what a, you know, fatal ship <laughs> the Pequod is. No, no. I, I think it's completely appropriate for us to be, like, looking ahead at this point because this is a, this is a moment in the book that, like, looks ahead in that way. Um, uh, so he, uh, he describes the Pequod, uh, which is, it's a very old and, like, well-worn ship. Um, but it also distinctively uh, has a lot of parts made out of parts of whales. Um, which I think Ishmael finds both impressive and morbid. Uh, he calls her a thing of trophies. Um, there's, there's another phrase there, the thing of trophies, yes, a cannibal of a craft. 
tricking herself forth in the chaste bones of her enemies. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh... Which, it's, it's literally the thing. Yeah. It's, it's literally the thing that... The cannibal versus Christian, this craft is a cannibal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, maybe that's why Yojo uh, likes uh, it. Or also, I guess we should consider the possibility um, that Ishmael didn't pick the boat that Yojo wanted. Um, yeah, entire, entirely like, possible. Uh, I, I uh, think that that little caveat about how Yojo doesn't always succeed in his benevolent designs definitely opens that possibility. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It is entirely possible Yojo's like, this will make them be friends, and then later, oh no... And I, I should point out, because atheism is a possibility in this book, it's just a complicated one, it's also possible Yojo doesn't exist, but... I mean, yeah. yeah. I, well, I, I think, in fact, like, probably Ishmael doesn't believe that Yojo exists, but he also clearly considers it, like, polite to behave in all ways as though he does. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um... Like, I think probably we're not reading this book meant to take the potential existence and powers of Yojo as seriously as we might be meant to take the possible existence and powers of, you know, a, a Christian... Starbucks yeah, god. Starbucks god. Good way of putting it. Um, uh, however, you know, because of the kind of person I am and oh, I, I should, the background I... I, sh I should interject. Go on. Sorry. We mean Starbuck the first mate, not the god of Starbucks coffee. Oh. We haven't met that character yet, so it was entirely possible a listener did not know what the hell I just said. <laughs> That's a very good point, yes. Um, right. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, uh, it, it, it sort of didn't occur to me to, like, um, just because... Well, to be honest, I I think the the immediate like reaction that I have uh, to Yojo is like influenced by like fantasy books that I read, where like if a if a god shows up and like says something prophetic, it's very rarely in like fantasy novel going to be just like uh, totally like to coincidental. Yeah, coincidental. Like it it's gonna mean something. It's gonna be motivated by a force. Um, but you know. This is maybe not a book where that assumption actually applies. Um, it's yeah, like it's yeah, maybe I mean, meant to tell us more about Queequeg, really. I I think that the the mention of the idea that Yojo maybe doesn't always get what he wants, but is a well intentioned god. I think at the very least, even if we're not meant to assume that Yojo has actual metaphysical powers, which I, I think probably is meant to be as ambiguous as every element of divinity in this book. I do think that we're supposed to have that model of divinity as a counterpoint to everything that happens later. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, uh, so Ishmael, pleased with the vibes, uh, decides that he's going to ship on the Pequod. Um, so he looks around for someone in charge and he finds a little circular tent um, with stakes made out of whalebone. Uh, and inside he meets Captain Peleg, who is one of the three captain owners of the Pequod. Uh, and Peleg interrogates Ishmael about his experience and his reasons for going whaling. Um, and he warns him uh, that if he wants to know what whaling is, he just has to look at Captain Ahab, whose leg was devoured by a whale. Um, which does kind of upset Ishmael, uh, but he's not deterred from his purpose. Um, so Peleg continues to question him, uh, and he suggests that, you know, if, if you want to see the world... 
Like, well, uh, just look out on the sea from where you are, and you'll see as much of the world as you will on this ship. I think kind of the implication being, when you're on a whaling voyage, you're just gonna see miles and miles of empty ocean. Um. I also have a dumb family sea shanty about that. Uh, do you? Yep, it's, um, uh... Uh, it starts with, I joined the Navy to see the world, but what did I see? I saw the sea. And then it's just listing the oceans and how they're not at all interesting to look at. Yeah. Uh. I think it's from a musical or something, honestly. My family's a bit eclectic that way. So, uh, so Ishmael, uh, is still, despite all these, all the ways Peleg is trying to discourage him, he's still determined, um, and Peleg agrees to ship him, uh meaning to take him onto the ship, to sign him on as a sailor. Um, so he takes him below decks, where they meet Captain Bildad, uh, the second of the three. Um, and Ishmael explains at this point that Peleg, Bildad, and uh, many other Nantucketers are Quakers, um, who, uh, I think most people know this, but um, uh, Quakerism is a like sect of Christianity that is... Uh, egalitarian and pacifist and uh emphasizes like uh personal communion with god um but uh you know despite that sort of general um you know dedication to pacifism uh ishmael makes it clear that the like whaling quakers are not at all like gentle in their you know way of hunting whales um, that, in fact, the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hunters, as he puts it, are, uh, are found I among these Nantucket Quakers. They are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. Yes. Which, by the way, uh, the sequel to my horror movie, The Quaker, Quaker with a Vengeance, <laughs> coming out soon. Also, fun fact, Richard Nixon was a Quaker. Yeah, that's one of those weird things. I mean, like, it's, it's. Like, that's very unfair to Quakers to be the first thing you bring up about Quakers. So I, I, I do want to be clear that's very unkind to the Society of Friends, as they are uh, technically called uh, as, a, as a sect. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it's definitely, I think, uh, reasonable to say, like, wow, Nixon was part of an ostensibly pacifist religious movement. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, and. Yeah, and I do really love this next section, which is describing how, you know, um, someone who uh, is um, a Quaker deep in their core, but who um, acquires from their later life this, uh, they are strangely, a, a, how do they put, how does he put this? There's a whole section here yeah, where so it's... Yeah, so I actually, um, hold it, up, uh, well, let me like introduce it slightly, and then I thought you might actually just want to read a big chunk of this out loud. Can I? Can Please I? Please go I'd ahead. Um, Thank you so much. So, uh, so, so having gone into this little uh, uh, description of, of these uh, fighting Quakers, this type of person that he's becoming familiar with, um, Ishmael uh, goes on to uh, specify sort of a, a particular, like, type of this, or like a, a, a specific subset of this type, I guess you would call it. Um, and if, if you want to just, uh, start with... Go for this yeah, paragraph? Yeah, where it starts, uh, so that there are instances among them. 
Sure, cut me off if I've... Or we can always cut it. I can, I can read the whole thing, and then we can cut it later. Read the whole <laughs> Go thing right out, ahead. Right? I right? think it's a good passage. Thank you. <laughs> Quakers with a vengeance, so that there are instances among them of men who named with scripture names, a singularly common fashion on the island, and in childhood naturally imbibing the stately dramatic thee and thou of the Quaker idiom, still, from the audacious, daring, and boundless adventures of their subsequent lives, strangely blend with these unoutgrown peculiarities, a thousand bold dashes of character, not unworthy a Scandinavian sea king or a poetical pagan Roman. And when these things unite in a man of greatly superior natural force, with a globular brain and a ponderous heart, who has also by the stillness and seclusion of many long night watches in the remotest waters and beneath constellations never seen here at the north, been led to think untraditionally and independently, receiving all nature's sweet or savage impressions, fresh from her own virgin, voluntary, and confiding breast, and thereby chiefly, but with some help from accidental advantages, to learn a bold and nervous lofty language, that man makes one in a whole nation census, a mighty pageant creature formed for noble tragedies." nor will it at all detract from him, dramatically regarded, if either by birth or other circumstances he have what seems a half-willful, overruling morbidness at the bottom of his nature. For all men tragically great are made so through a certain morbidness. Be sure of this, O young ambition, all mortal greatness is but disease. But as yet we have not to do with such a one, but with quite another. Yes. So so he goes on with this real, like, expansion into this character of, of someone truly singular. Uh, and then says, oh, that's not the guy we're talking about. That's someone else. And he doesn't even name who it is, but uh, I think... I wonder yeah, who so, it like, is! Frankly, I, I think it would be quite easy for anyone who knows anything about just, like, the cultural context of the story to guess. But I also think even... Like, if you were reading this when it had first been published, it should be easy to guess that he's talking about Captain Ahab because he's referred to uh, three people that he's introducing us to here. And he's just made it clear that he doesn't mean the one he just actually met. So uh, there is this kind of foreshadowing about Ahab where we're getting this this real intense picture of him. Um, part you might say that we've been filled with a certain wild vagueness. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, the thing is, part of the reason why I wanted you to read this paragraph in the whole, like, not just because it's an excellent paragraph and also because I, I knew you'd enjoy expounding on Ahab's character, but also because I couldn't figure out how to summarize it. Um, like, yeah, the, um, he, he's very intentionally, you know, working in these, like, contradictory uh, kind of extremes of character and also, like, like because because uh, what he's describing is so singular, it's a little bit, like, it's actually a little hard to paraphrase the things that he's talking about, because I, I don't know that... Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that's, that's Captain Ahab. Yeah, no. Yeah, and I, I think you're perfectly right that it's, it is a character that is profoundly difficult to summarize. And if I can take a very a slight um, aside here... I, it's one of I, I think I mentioned before that it took me a really long time to come to Moby Dick and actually be able to read it. Like literally, I stopped after the first chapter or two when I tried to read it in like high school and early college, and I came back to it after college and I loved it. Um, and I think really 
a large part of that is that the stock figure of Ahab that you like get from the most famous quotations, the, the image of the story, is extremely one-dimensional. He's just really angry at a whale. And, like, irrationally angry, and the story is about how irrational he is, and about the, the, the folly of vengeance. And that's all very pat, and that's how you sort of receive it in sort of high school summary mm-hmm. form. And you, because it's really hard to summarize the actual character of, of Ahab, and this, this paragraph is sort of gesturing at and talking about, but it still isn't entirely... Like you say, there's contradiction, there's these internal tensions, which makes for a very good character, but also a very difficult summary. I think the closest you could get would just be to clip out the section that says, you know, be sure of this, O young ambition, all mortal greatness is but disease, because it's certainly not the case that Ahab's in a good way. No, no, he is not. Uh, yeah, there's there's a little more about that later, uh, later on in the chapter as well. Um, <laughs> but, uh... Having, having like, gone into this digression, uh, he then makes it clear, I'm not talking about Bildad. Um, and he talks a little bit about <laughs> or, what Bildad is actually like. Um, were you about to say something? No, no, no. I, 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 I yeah, misunderstood cool. where you were going. Um, it's all My good. Uh, so, uh, so Bildad is uh, an extremely pious and serious person, um, despite having, like, you know, travel the world, it hasn't, uh, it has not removed the stick from his ass at all. Um, uh, he, he has worked his way up from being a cabin boy to, uh, his current position where he's a, he owns a third part of a ship and is retired from actually sailing. Um, which is a good thing for Ishmael because Bildad has a reputation as being an extremely hard taskmaster when he's actually captaining a ship. Um, and uh, when they, when Peleg and Ishmael encounter him uh, below decks in the cabin, um, he is reading from the Bible, and uh, Peleg kind of makes fun of him for it. And they, he's also he's also specifically reading from the Bible while sitting up like ramrod straight with the book in front of him. Like uh, he's just the way he's described is. Um, you, you mentioned that he, you know, he never got rid of the stick up his ass, and apparently it's physically present because he doesn't bend at all in the entire scene, and it's it's Ishmael notes yes. this. Yeah, uh, he has terrifying posture. Um, so uh, the the two captains then kind of uh, put on a little show for Ishmael, um, where uh, basically they're arguing over um, how much Ishmael should be paid uh, now that he's been hired. Um, and the way that this works is by a system called lays, uh, where somebody would be said to have, say, the the 200th lay would mean they get one 200th of the entire take that the ship gets. Um, so uh, that's how that's how these whalers are paid. Um, and uh, Ishmael's initial uh, sort of estimation is that he thinks he'd, he'd like to get the 275th, um, but he thinks it's... Well, he thinks he should. He thinks he should be offered at least the two hundred seventy fifth, but he's hopeful for something as high as the two hundredth yeah. leg. Um, so that's what he's going into this negotiation thinking. Uh, but Bildad, uh, you know, uh, reading, uh, sort of interspersing what he's saying with quotes from the Bible, uh, says that uh, he should be given the seven hundredth and seventy seventh, um, which is. 
Well, he's he doesn't just say that. He says uh, also all the Quakers speak with these and thous, as referenced in that that section about the character of a fight of a truly unique Quaker, um, which is it's just lovely. I really enjoyed, it. and it's clearly meant to be archaic even in Ishmael's time. But the um, he has the the wonderful line from Bildad when uh, asked by Peleg uh, what lay they should give Ishmael is. Thou knowest best, was the sepulchral reply. The 777th wouldn't be too much, would it? And then he continues to, the, the specific line from the Bible is, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust do corrupt. Uh, and then it continues on with, but lay, but lay up treasures for heaven. Uh, though he never gets to that in the actual quotation. No, no, there it is. No, I, mm, he's, he's quoting around the section. He's not quoting a single straight yeah, he's of kind text. of weaving it into his speech. And he's also emphasizing the word lay, uh, you know, punishly. Yep, lay up. Do not lay up your treasures, therefore we're giving you a small lay. Yeah, it's also, you know, fucking sickening for this guy who is, you know, I not to put too fine a point on it, literally a capitalist in that he owns the capital that is this ship. Uh, mm-hmm. To be being like, oh, well, I, we wouldn't want to give you too much money and make you be too greedy. That would be bad for your soul. Um, like, yeah, just yeah. fuck you. Um, but uh, uh, it, the, right, so the little drama that I referred to is that uh, Peleg sort of uh, gets mad about this and is like, oh, you're trying to cheat him. That's ridiculous. Uh, and uh, argues, argues Bildad down to the 300th lay, um, which... Which we'll note is significantly worse than Ishmael's low estimate. Yes, uh, but because presumably of this like back and forth and because of being threatened with the possibility of the 777th, uh, Ishmael comes away from it thinking that he, he did a pretty good job. Uh, he, he did pretty well for himself. Yeah, it's, it is a remarkably uh, cheap trick that the, the captains play, but they do it real well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're clearly very practiced at this. They probably pull this trick on like everyone, or at least everyone who is like green enough. A to... new hand. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and uh, the there's a certain perfidy about these Quakers, specifically these Quakers. I don't mean Quakers in general. Uh, I I know. Yeah. Um. So uh uh. I have good friends who are Quakers. Peleg uh, in in part of in in this like little fake argument um it apparent it, it seems to turn heated and peleg actually rushes bildad uh which really makes ishmael uncomfortable but um doesn't seem to bother bildad in the slightest um and peleg backs off immediately after that uh, they don't actually have a fight or anything um, well it's he bildad is in like the seat at the desk and peleg rushing him rushing over to him and like pushing him out of the chair then just sits down and takes his place in writing the ledger so it's not I think Ishmael slightly overinterpreted that rush, as as I'm sure he was meant to do. It looks a lot more violent and argumentative when actually it's just nope, nope. I'm writing. I'm writing. Yes. Uh, so after this, Peleg signs him up uh, for the three hundredth lay, um, and uh, Ishmael takes this chance to mention that he also has a friend with him uh, who has more whaling experience than he does, um, and Peleg says to bring him along. Um, so. So Queequeg is set, and hopefully we'll be getting paid better. Um, I I don't think they could pull this same trick on Queequeg. I think at the very least, the language barrier would make it difficult. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, also, like, the guilt trip wouldn't work on him, right? Yeah, I mean, my in, my memory of the next of the section with Queequeg is that Queequeg gets a much better lay. Yeah, I guess that must happen quite soon, so we can see what happen, how it goes when we come to it. Um, yep, yep. So, uh, Ishmael is feeling pretty pleased about this situation, since he's been tricked. Uh, but it does occur to him that he hasn't yet met Ahab, uh, and he's a little worried about that. Um, but Peleg explains this probably won't happen until they sail, because Ahab hasn't been leaving the house. Uh, so Peleg gives him a bit of a description of Ahab here. This time we know he, someone's talking about Ahab. Um, and it, it, mm-hmm. it is kind of similarly, like, dramatic and complex to the one we got from Ishmael earlier. Um, but, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a little more, I think Peleg is, is, is trying to, like, trying to sort of sell Ishmael on Ahab, while also not denying Ahab's clear, like, uh... Uncanniness? Yeah, uncanniness. That's a good way of putting it. Um, uh, and, uh, one, one sort of little, like, crux of this is that Peleg points out that the biblical Ahab was a king, uh, and Ishmael replies that he... You know, he's also, like, an incredibly wicked and villainous king in the Bible. Um, and, and Peleg... And the dog. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, you... The, the... Oh, it's, um, when that wicked king was slain, the dogs, did they not lick his blood? Which, I'm just going to point out, Ishmael, don't, don't do that. Don't, like, respond to someone saying, oh, you know, um, he's a great guy. You know, he was a... Ahab was a king in the Bible. Don't respond with... But, like, an evil one, and, and dogs licked his blood. That's really weird, Ishmael. Yeah, I mean, okay, yes, like, but is it weirder than naming your child after that king? I mean, no, but these things happen, and in fact, the next the next bit is, uh... That's pretty much what Pelling says. basically saying, look, these things happen, his mother didn't know her Bible that well, she just chose a king's name, and, eh, what can you do? Yeah, um, and he does say that, you know, uh, like, oh, some people will tell you that that name would prove prophetic, but it's not true. He's a, he's a good man. Uh, he's a good captain. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, he, he does, uh, in all of this insistence that, that Ahab is a good captain, Peleg does kind of give us a sense of, of the things that might be wrong with him, that he's been... Uh, extremely moody, especially since the loss of his leg. Um, yeah, I mean, at close to the end, he says something like, I, I, I know that he was never very jolly, and I know that on the passage home, he was a little out of his mind for a spell. Yes. Uh, but, you know, he he got his leg bitten off. It's very reasonable. Yeah, no, it's 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 really hard to blame anyone for being mentally fucked up after something as awful like is that happening to them uh but uh also Peleg's like final point as like oh Ahab can't be all bad is like oh but he has a a young wife and child um which is uh frankly just very sad yeah yeah it's it's um Think of that. By that sweet girl, that old man has a child. Hold ye then that there can be any utter hopeless harm in Ahab? No, no, my lad. Stricken, blasted if he be. Ahab has his humanities. And it's like, this is how you're trying to convince us that he is a good man. 
that he's not beyond all hope and is definitely not completely damned. I, I have to imagine that Peleg either either Peleg is is like really not very good at this particular part of the convincing, or he is assuming that Ishmael has heard much worse rumors about Ahab than he actually has. Um, yeah, I yeah, that's that's very reasonable. There's stuff that's going to happen in the next few chapters where we hear more. Uh, the chapter of the prophet, in fact, which I'm really looking forward to, um, which is 19, has um, has some rumors about Ahab. But um, yeah, I think also Peleg is. Um, I think Peleg is also kind of in shock about how much Ahab has changed since the event, and is trying to downplay it while maybe not being super comfortable with it himself. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Um... Um, right, there's also a line in that description. If, if I can read a little bit of this description of Ahab, because like you said, I, I never tire of descriptions of Ahab. Go ahead. Oh, thou'lt, like, thou'lt, thou'lt, sorry. Oh, thou'lt like him well enough. No fear, no fear. He's a grand, ungodly, godlike man, Captain Ahab. Doesn't speak much, but when he does speak, then you may well listen. Mark ye be forewarned. Ahab's above the common. Ahab's been in colleges as well as among the cannibals, been used to deeper wonders than the waves, fixed his fiery lance in mightier, stranger foes than whales. What the fuck does that mean? You know, that's a really good point. What the hell is a mightier, stranger foe than the whale? Like, I... His fiery lance in mightier, stranger foes than whales... It, Unless you literally just mean he has studied theology, which I, I'm certain he has, um, that makes it sound like he's hunted angels or something. Ahab has hunted the dinosaur. <laughs> Ahab briefly visits Scotland, and that's why we can't find Nessie. God. Yeah, so, uh... Okay, I have a... I, I just want to pitch my historical fantasy novel. It's a pastiche of Moby Dick. And it involves a small lake in Scotland. Oh, God. <laughs> so, uh, <sighs> yeah, that pretty much brings us to the close of this chapter. Ishmael walks off, pondering Ahab and feeling all kinds of conflicting emotions about him. Um, and uh, that is the end of this chapter. Yep, he also has the, he says, I felt impatience at what seemed like mystery in him, so imperfectly as he was known to me then. It's just like, yeah, I remember feeling that exact same way at this point in the book, thanks. <laughs> like, one thing that's not always true of Ishmael, since he's so often the storyteller, is that some, when he is the audience to a story, he can be really empathetic with the, 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 you can really inhabit him as the reader when he's sort of like, you know, not necessarily thinking the same things you'd be thinking, but he fixes on the same kinds of things that the reader fixes on sometimes. Not not always. But when he does, it's a very, honestly, it's a very pleasant experience because you can like, yeah, I want to know about this too. Speculate, Ishmael. Yeah, I mean, I think like for everybody, those moments are going to come at different times, right? Like, for example, yeah, that's fair. I'm sure that you feel some of that at the times when there's just like sailing description. Yeah, a little bit. Um. Yeah. Ah, mm. another thing that's a little bit earlier in the discussion with uh, Bildag and Peleg, um, where uh, Bildag basically says Peleg's going to hell. 
Yeah, yeah, he does pretty much say that. Um, they they seem to have a, a, a like clearly they're playing it up, but they do seem to have a genuinely kind of contentious relationship. Yeah, I mean, it seems as though they work together very well, but are also very different kinds of people. But I specifically really like how Peleg's response to that, you know, um. I greatly fear lest thy conscience be but a leaky one, and will in the end sink thee foundering down to the fiery pit, Captain Peleg. And Peleg, you know, sputters and shouts at that and says, It's an all-fired outrage to tell any human creature that he's bound to hell. And I just think that's very interesting in the context of the various moral sort of questions and, uh... I mean, okay, for one thing, Ishmael seems to be of basically the opinion that everyone's going to heaven he appears to be more or less a universalist that's uh like i can't think of i can't think of a single time ishmael is actually like considered hell or the possibility of hell he's only talked about how you know this world will give way to a better one hmm i mean there is hmm yeah you could be well uh, no you may be right i mean because i was just like casting my mind over the bass the, the previous parts of this and um, the things that immediately came to mind were like references to hell in the sermon, but that's not Ishmael. Um, I, I do think that like, uh, you know, universalism is a pretty huge departure from like traditional Christian theology. Like, uh, yeah, no, it, uh, it is, but I sort of feel like if we're going to uh, attribute that to Ishmael, it, it requires a little bit more, like, affirmative, like, I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I withhold judgment on this because I want to actually finish the book before I agree with you. That's very fair. I, I personally would take, like, my major piece of evidence for this, especially at this point of rereading, so I'm not, you know, super well versed in the later chapters, and specifically Ishmael in the later chapters, I would take his behavior towards Queequeg. At the very least, he seems to be pretty, he does not seem concerned about the state of Queequeg's immortal soul. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, there's this sort of complicated thing here where um, a lot of the people in this story are perfectly, like, conscious of hell, but also, like, do not in fact behave as though, like, eternal damnation is coming to them, right? Like, I'm, uh, you know, Peleg is kind of a, like, uh like, a coarse person who, like, swears and gets angry easily and things like that. Um, but, like, I don't think we have any reason to think that he, um, like, uh, what am I trying to say here? Um, he he gets very offended at uh, Bildad saying this to him. Um, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't actually say, no, you're wrong about me. (laughs) <laughs> He's mostly just like that's a True. that's an offensive thing to say, because um, wow, real fucked up to say someone's going to the hell, uh, even if it's true. That's beside the point, right? Like, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is there is this kind of like weird consciousness that I think a lot of um, a lot of people in like I don't know how to put it, like societies that are even more normatively Christian than ours, right? Because like you know we do live in a a, a society where Christianity is the norm. Um, but it's also one where, like, uh, 
there is widespread, like, skepticism about, like, the existence of things like God and hell. Um, whereas, like, I think there there is, like, a, a, a psychological state of, like, believing that hell exists and believing that any sin means you're going there and that, like, everyone commits little sins all the time and that, therefore, you're almost certainly going to hell and so is probably everyone you know. And you just kind of accept that and move forward in your life. Like, I think that's a real state that people exist in or, or have existed mm-hmm. in. Yeah, the the uh, the elect exist, but I'm probably not one of them position. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's it's hard to actually say, like, what pr- pr- probably most of these characters just don't think about these things all the time. Um, but but it, I think essentially what I'm saying is we can't. I, I don't know if I could really say at this point whether Ishmael is someone who doesn't believe in hell or someone who just prefers not to think about it most of the time. Hmm. Well, we'll see. Yeah. There is also, I mean, it's, hmm. Because Ishmael is also, like, suicidal. Um, and, uh, like, it, it's it's pretty universally agreed upon, I think, by, like, you yeah, know, Christians who also... believe in hell that, that suicide gets you damned. Um, which it, yeah, which is I... fucked up, but... Yeah, 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 no, I, I, but something you actually mentioned, I think, early on that I thought was really impressive was that you specifically noted that he sort of, he does use Christian religious, uh, condemnation of hell as like an of, of, of suicide as an anti-suicide like palliative for himself yeah um like he he definitely uses the fact that the almighty frowns on it as a way of avoiding it like hamlet but less whiny i i'm not actually sure that's fair uh ishmael is plenty whiny about all kinds of things I, yeah, but Hamlet's really whiny. I I think that's a bit of a, I mean, look, I I, I guess I can't, like, on some level disagree, but I also think it's a little flippant. Hamlet is wrestling with, you know, the great existential question, so is Ishmael. That's fair, but I, I don't know, I just find... As much as Ishmael is not exactly a, a, a reasonable individual, I find him a less, a lot less, um... Well, okay, you know what? It's probably the lack of murders. <laughs> That's probably the answer here, is that uh, Hamlet is very certain that he is more sinned against than sinning, and, you know, is, is very poorly treated, and then also does some murders, whereas Ishmael does no murders and is also much more stoic about the whole thing. Yeah, that's fair. Um I recall... This has been comparative, uh, you know, psychologically weird protagonists in classical English literature. I recall, I think this was in connection with um, Ryan North's uh, To Be or Not To Be, That Is The Adventure, which is a ridiculous piece of literature. It's a choose-your-own-adventure, or, like, you know, serial numbers filed off, choose-your-own-adventure version of Hamlet. Um, Anyway, I think... The introduction to that refers to Hamlet as a thirty-year-old teen, which I also think yeah, is an accurate he description. Absolutely of absolutely is. Um, hmm. I don't know. I, it's. I I I just. Hmm, hmm, hmm. 
I mean, he's he's a different kind of teen, but like, yeah, like he. I guess. No, I mean, you're you're pro. This is probably very fair. I'm just having to confront some things. What that like you and I are rapidly becoming thirty year old teens ourselves. Shh! I can't let them know. <laughs> We take that secret to our graves, damn it. <laughs> I think I, I think I have run out of steam with that. Uh, like Ishmael, I am doing too much introspection and am liable to do something very stupid. Well, please do... Such as continue this conversation. Please do not sign up on the Pequod. Uh... I can't even get there from here. We're landlocked, and I'm actually, I'm actually currently, um, you know, we are recording this during the uh, the pandemic, the the safer at home orders and everything. And I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, which has a lovely sailing lake, and they probably aren't going to be putting any of the club boats out on it this, uh, the university club boats out on it this summer because people are going to be not, you know, interacting closely, and student employees won't be on campus. So, I'm. I would currently be very susceptible to, hey, want to go be on a boat completely separate from the rest of humanity in an enclosed, in an enclosed space for, like, a few months to a year? That that's actually sounds pretty good right now. I mean, that, like, the problem is, like, uh, that also sounds like a way for you to die, though. Like, if anyone on a boat gets coronavirus, the entire boat gets coronavirus. Yeah, and there's also whales. Yes, you might also die to whales, I guess. I think, you know, I say it's a pity, but it's really not that the um, the the plague ship that turns up later in this book and its weird religious manias and so on is a real significant distance in both time and water away from Nantucket. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I, I say that's a, a problem, but actually, that's good. Yeah. You know, uh, all, hopefully, by the time we get to that, we will be looking at coronavirus in the rearview mirror. Yeah, fingers crossed. We also have now, like, doomed ourselves to needing to figure out how to put these podcasts up sooner rather than later, so that this doesn't become, like, horribly dated immediately. We can always just cut it, or leave me in asking to cut it, and not what we cut, making it a mystery. I, I don't think I'm going to cut this entire, uh, like, end of the podcast Dumb aside. Thing. Yeah, no, that sounds like too much work for me. Um, Fair enough. Look, I don't think anyone will resent us for, for being a little bit uh, out of date, but, you know, I'm certainly in favor of it going up sometime. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so, um... Yeah, it's... Conversations that definitionally date the podcast. Huh, we should really put the podcast up sometime. Hush. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm... I'm. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Char Asnablunt. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's this podcast, I think. Bye. Thank you for listening, especially to this last bit since it was really putting up with a lot. Bye, everyone.